Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Today's business leaders are saying that sustainability and diversity metrics are key to the way they do business. But what does that look like in practice? Stick around until the end of this episode to hear more. From NPR and WBUR, I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and this is On Point. Let's trace the serpentine path of the week's most overwhelming story. On Monday evening, back in the White House, the president said of the virus that's killed more than 212,000 Americans and infected more than 7.6 million. Don't let it dominate you. Don't be afraid of it. On Tuesday, Trump torpedoes negotiations over a COVID stimulus bill. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell was already worried. A long period of unnecessarily slow progress could continue to exacerbate existing disparities in our economy. That would be tragic. Wednesday, President Trump's view of the virus moves from domination to deification. I think this was a blessing from God that I caught it. This was a blessing in disguise. And Thursday, the number of COVID cases in the White House and beyond growing, including most of the Joint Chiefs, well, they're in quarantine at least, the Commission on Presidential Debate decides to move to a virtual format to protect the health and safety of people in the room from a potentially contagious president. Trump says no. What's the point of virtual? And by the end of the day, the president's physician releases a memo saying the president could re-enter public life by Saturday. I'd love to do a rally tonight. I wanted to do one last night. Uh, But I think I'm better to a point that I feel better than I did, uh, you know, I jokingly said 20 years ago. I feel perfect. But the government is not functioning perfectly. This story's evolution this week contains within it the devolution of trust and truth. So what sense is there to be made of the chaos of this week? Let's start with Paula Reed. She covers the Justice Department and the White House for CBS News. Hi there, Paula. Hello. So we had you on the show on Monday. It's been an epically confusing and long week since then. Where are you talking to us from today? I am talking to you from my home. I am currently in quarantine. A short time after we spoke on Monday, uh, my boss has called and they said uh, I had been exposed to to Kaylee McEnany on on Thursday at the briefing uh, the week prior. And uh, as out an abundance of caution, they wanted me to to quarantine for for two weeks because I had been exposed to at that point one positive person. But then we learned the three aides, three young press assistants she had with her at that press briefing who sat pretty close to me, they've also, all three of them have tested positive. So I, I completely understand, but I've been working from home uh, since Monday. How are you feeling? I feel fine. I've tested negative uh, repeatedly, but will continue to get tested and continue to work from home uh, for probably at least another week. At least another week. So roughly the, the two weeks then of quarantine that is recommended. Yeah, that's the policy that they're they're luckily, fortunately for me and for anyone else I might come in contact with, uh, that's what they're following. Now, how close were you uh, to the 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 potential the people who might have potentially exposed you? So I'm in the front row at that briefing to uh-huh. Kaylee, who is not wearing a mask. That's probably I've been told reliably it, it's about six six ish feet. Um, but she's also up on a platform. Her assistants, three of them, uh, they were uh, one of them was was quite close. It's unclear why these three young maskless press assistants had to be present for this, exposing other people potentially and themselves, even though at that point they didn't necessarily know or they say they didn't know uh, that there were positive cases in the White House. Sometimes folks come to observe. But again, in a pandemic, in an unusual circumstance, it's, it's a fair question why we need to add extra people to the room, particularly when they're not wearing masks, as all all of the reporters uh, and journalists in the room were. Yeah, so I'm looking at a picture of you in uh, in the White House press room there, and there you are in the front row, just a few feet away from from the lectern. Uh, you, you might have just said this, Paula, but let me be sure I heard you correctly. Who informed you that sure. that you needed to go into quarantine because you might have been exposed? Yeah, my company, uh, CBS News. They've been on top of this since the beginning. We have testing protocols before you travel, after you travel. Um, I have other colleagues who are also quarantined. They're pretty strict about this. They keep on top of it. Uh, So they called me and and I completely understood. Um, I I didn't realize that Kaylee and I were quite so close that we were in that six foot range. Um, But when they explained it to me, I really did understand. And and I know the CDC guidelines. So yeah, it's a CBS Viacom policy. Okay. But the call didn't come from the White House. 
No, I haven't heard from them at all. Uh, I call them uh, as sources, but no, no one in the White House has called me. No one's talked to me uh, in statements, official statements uh, from Kaylee. She said she had no close contact with any reporters, but obviously that picture tells a different story. You subsequently had each one of those press assistants, two of whom were pretty close. One was very close. Test positive as well. Haven't heard from anyone at the White House uh, related to that either. So at least as far as you, who's now in quarantine, no, no official White House contact tracing as far as, as, as far as you know. No, certainly not. And I, we can say, I think, pretty, pretty confidently, they, they haven't been terribly cooperative in sharing information about who in the press office has tested positive. I mean, that's true for the whole White House, right? Most of what we've learned has come from reporters, not from uh, official announcements. No, the White House press office, not only have they taken a pretty cavalier attitude towards this virus over the past several months, a risk that me and other journalists knew uh, we were taking on by reporting from the West Wing. But in this recent outbreak, no, they have not been transparent at all. Yeah. So uh, it's it's a risk that that uh, you you knew that you were taking. And, but there's also, as we all know, in addition, there there are so many other people who work in the White House staff, uh, the Absolutely. housekeepers. Yeah, go ahead. Absolutely. And they, they don't necessarily get paid. Uh, when they're not home. Again, there's some people who are contracted, uh, custodial workers who, who are an outside contract, other people who officially work in the White House uh, as part of the staff there. Um, but you think there's a lot of people there that don't get paid if they have to quarantine, who don't have access, as I do, uh, to a company that provides testing. Uh, there are a lot of people who, whose lives and livelihoods are at risk, again, by this cavalier attitude towards a virus, just not even taking even basic mitigation Steps. Yeah. And in addition, as far as I understand, and th- I mean, this week, things have been changing moment to moment. So I'm, I'm hoping that I'm still accurate about this. But since you, you haven't heard officially from the White House regarding contact tracing, I'm going to just presume that for now, it means that the White House still hasn't taken up the CDC's offer to do that very contact tracing. And so yesterday... We actually spoke with Mark Lipsitch, professor of epidemiology at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, and he said that once the very first positive case in the White House was known, that contact tracing uh, and quarantining contacts should have been done immediately. Often those are hard to do because we don't have enough resources, we don't have enough records of who was where, but, you know, this was a heavily photographed event, and there's plenty of record of who was near whom. And so the contact tracing would have been comparatively straightforward to do. But because it's not consistent with the president's message, it wasn't done. And the event he's referring to there would be the Rose Garden event uh, with uh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Now, Lipsitch also said that testing is a key to containing this virus, but not testing alone. You can't test people every hour. There's going to be some period if someone gets infected, between the time that they would test positive if you could test them and the time that you actually get the result that they're positive. During that period, they are potentially spreading the virus without people knowing. So it's not a substitute, it's a complement to other control measures. That's Mark Lipsitch, a professor of epidemiology at the Harvard School of Public Health. Paula, um, as much as you can tell from the quarantine that you have to be under in your home, how what effect has this had on uh, the White House's ability to, to operate? Well, clearly, if you have a West Wing this close to an election, while you're now, I know the mixed messages on the stimulus, but as of today, the White House is once again pushing for a stimulus deal. It's very hard to uh, to operate efficiently and effectively. And this is the byproduct of the attitude that they've taken uh, towards the the virus really since the beginning. They've just pretty much conducted business as usual. The president's been traveling. These people have been traveling with him, not even taking basic uh, precautions. And as a result, they're in this situation where many of the key officials cannot actually be in the West Wing together. Now, fortunately, we do have a lot of technology uh, that allows people to communicate and still work, but it's no way to run a White House, particularly when you're so close to the election. 
Now, one note on contact tracing uh, in our reporting. Uh, we do know uh, at least two CDC epidemiologists have joined the White House Medical Unit to help mm. with contact tracing. Now, what that actually means uh, in, in terms of execution and what's happening, it's not really clear. Uh, some of it may just be uh, for appearances. I certainly haven't been contacted. I don't know other people who have. Um, but there is at least the appearance of an effort um, to to take some of that CDC assistance. Well, that's good. So so I appreciate the update there. At least this is some some people from CDC have joined. That is actually a great update. Um, but one would presume that uh, in a place like the White House where um, people are very closely monitored in terms of who's coming in and who's coming out of the White House, that, that contact tracing, this might be the simplest contact tracing effort ever once it actually gets fully underway because it's not so much of a mystery of who you're looking for. But, but to your point about how is the White House functioning, I, you know, and I'm, when I, uh, a, couple, a day or two ago when the seven of the Joint Chiefs had to go into quarantine because they too were exposed, not yet testing positive, but exposed, it just made me think, yeah, we've got technology, but nothing's as secure as the Situation Room, you know? So, so the idea that um, the, gov- the White House can function, you didn't say this, but like there's just no way that the White House can function fully or, or securely. And that's just got to have an impact, like a, a ripple effect across government. Of course it does. It has enormous it has enormous national security implications. Um, it's it's really it's it's just startling uh, that they allowed it to get this bad because even just basic precautions, basic mitigation could have prevented it from spreading this far and this fast. And when voters are thinking about who they want to elect in November, this is the most recent massive event that they have to go on. And I think a lot of people, even if they were willing to sort of hold their nose about about some of the antics and the president's Twitter account comes up a lot in our polling, this is a level of chaos and disorder. Well, not terribly shocking to me because I cover this day in and day out, that to most Americans, just this is not palatable. So it's definitely not improving the president's chances. And then he went and appeared to try to blow up talks of a second stimulus, which really takes the chaos and the disorder to to the kitchen table of many, many Americans. Now he's trying to walk that back. Mm. Well, Paula Reed is the White House and Justice Department correspondent for CBS News, currently speaking to us from quarantine in her own home because she may have been exposed to COVID-19. Still testing negative, Paula, so we hope you stay safe through the rest of your quarantine, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. All right. Well, when we come back, we'll talk more about how to understand what this serpentine, chaotic week in the news regarding coronavirus in Washington, how do we figure out what the impact of all that is? We'll talk about that more when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. In a recent episode, series CEO Mindy Luber says sustainability has reached a board level. Look, if you're an agricultural company and you're not thinking about water risk, you're an apparel company, you're not thinking about risk to your cotton crop around the world. If you are a bank and not thinking about stranded assets of fossil fuels, you're not probably doing your due diligence. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of the episode. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and it's Friday, and the story we are reviewing this week is COVID in the White House and how the tentacles of a coronavirus outbreak uh, with the president and around the president has really reached into all or many aspects of U.S. federal governance. Now, we asked listeners how you're responding to the president's upbeat attitude about the fact that he had been infected with the novel coronavirus. And here's Denise Carr from Buffalo, New York. Here's what she said. As a person who has lost a parent to this disease in this year, 
Um, I find it rather insulting and unempathetic. I also am a school teacher, as is my husband. Currently, we are preparing for students to return in person to school, and the precautions that we are taking to do that are far greater than what we see happening in the White House currently in the midst of an outbreak of their own. So that's On Point listener Denise Carr in Buffalo, New York. On Wednesday, President Trump released a video from outside the Oval Office where he celebrated a drug manufactured by Regeneron, this experimental drug that he was given while at Walter Reed Hospital. I went in, I wasn't feeling so hot. And within a very short period of time, they gave me Regeneron. It's called Regeneron and other things too, but I think this was the key. But they gave me Regeneron. And it was, like, unbelievable. I felt good immediately. I felt as good three days ago as I do now. Well, virologist Angela Rasmussen says uh, that uh, she warned against drawing any broader conclusions about the drug's efficacy. Rasmussen is a professor at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. And she says the president's experience uh, is the experience of one because the Regeneron drug is actually still in clinical trial. During the 2014 Ebola epidemic, um, ZMAP was given to a number of the medical personnel who were infected with Ebola and evacuated from West Africa. ZMAP is also a cocktail of monoclonal antibodies. People thought that ZMAP worked when it was given in those compassionate use settings because a lot of those people got better. But then when they did a clinical trial of ZMAP in the Democratic Republic of Congo during a different Ebola outbreak, it was shown to not have very much of an effect at all. You really can't conclude anything just by giving a drug without any controls outside of the context of a randomized controlled trial. So again, this drug that the president was given is still in clinical trials. It has not been formally approved by the FDA. Nevertheless, President Trump said that that drug and others, which he billed as a cure, and again, we cannot yet know that because it is still in clinical trials, the president said the drug would soon be widely available. So we're going to get you the drug. It's going to be free. We're going to get it into the hospitals as soon as you can, as soon as we can, and you'll see some amazing things happen. Dr. Rasmussen, though, says that's very unlikely. There's currently not the manufacturing capacity to provide that drug to every single person in this country who has COVID-19. So I think it's it creates a, a false expectation that everybody is going to be getting access to this miracle drug when that won't be the case. And we don't even know if the drug is even really effective. Again, that's Dr. Angela Rasmussen, a professor at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. So, so, Claims from the president and clinical truths about one of the drugs that he was given uh, to control his COVID. Well, joining us now is Kimberly Atkins. She's senior opinion writer at the Boston Globe with us from Washington. Hi there, Kimberly. Hi, Magna. And Jack Beatty, On Point News Analyst with us from Hanover, New Hampshire. Hello, Jack. Hello, Magna. Hello, Kimberly. Okay, so Kimberly, let me me just start with you. Um, That little TikTok we gave of presidential claims versus truths about the Regeneron disease. It's just yet another um, exemplar of the sort of whiplash that people have had this week versus what the president's claiming versus what's what's real. I mean, how, how, do, you, how do you wrap your head around that? I mean, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, right down to the fact that Regeneron is the name of the company that is creating this therapeutic. It's actually not even the name of the therapeutic, but you had President Trump releasing this video, which looked like one of those. I have insomnia, so very often you see these uh, commercials that are, you know, selling some sort of, you know, something that will make your skin clear up or something else. It sounded like that. He sounded like a salesman. But it didn't have the fast talking at the end with all the, you know, with all the side effects and and ask your doctor stuff. Yeah. No side effects at all. But he is clearly trying to push this. And keep in mind the context of this. It was right after his own uh, FDA announced that they would not try to rush a vaccine before the election, before the election, that a vaccine would not come before an election. They were sort of putting the brakes to make sure the trials had enough time to go through. That was something that the president really wanted. So without a vaccine, he's clearly trying to push this therapeutic treatment, which 
which is for people who are very sick and is not widely available. He got it because he's the president, as if it's some sort of cure that he magically is presenting to people before the election. And it's also his great desire to get out of the White House. Uh, We are less than four weeks from an election, and he would be without this virus, on the campaign trail, holding rallies. We saw him holding rallies even before his diagnosis, rallies that violated uh, the CDC's own protocols in terms of how many people were packed together. But he clearly wants to get back at that. And he's seeing his own coronavirus diagnosis as something that's standing in the way uh, and also standing in the way of his potential election. So he's making political calculations here, not medical calculations. Hmm. Jack, what do you think? Well, you know, we're in a period of democratic emergency. The president has not committed to a peaceful transition of power. The vice president uh, this week did not commit to that. And everything that happens now has to be evaluated through that prism. So how has COVID affected that outlook, the outlook that the president will do something or that there will be a crisis that will, will essentially uh, derail the uh, the democratic system. Well, he's made two decisions uh, that were uh, well. He he blew up the debate, the virtual debate with Biden, passing up an audience of seventy million people, an audience he could have used to correct the catastrophic impression to judge by the polls he made in his first debate. And second, he canceled stimulus talks, which, of course, Mm -hmm. would have um, uh, injected uh, some momentum into the economy. Beyond that, would have created uh, positive expectations, even if the economic effects weren't held. These were uh, irrational decisions. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is raising issues of the 25th Amendment and, and presidential fitness. You know, it reminds me a little bit of what uh, Dorothy Parker said when she was told that Calvin Coolidge had had died. She said, how could they tell? Uh, How could one tell that Trump was more irrational than usual? Perhaps he was. We don't know. But what we do know is the effect, the likely effect of this week and these decisions on his electoral prospects. Bad in both cases. Mm. You know, there was a poll out this week that had him in McGovern territory, 37 uh, percent. That may change. But nothing he did this week, nothing in these covid related decisions is going to help him. And almost certainly it's going to hurt him. And if it means a big a, a blowout election for Biden, that lifts some of the pressure building toward this democratic emergency. Mm. So, Kimberly, to Jack's point uh, about you know, viewing viewing the actions of the president through that particular lens of his lack of clarity about whether he'll, he'd accept the results of an election. Um, I, I also I mean, like there, there's there's been we, we've been maybe numbed to a particular amount of chaos coming out of this White House. But I, you know, I think to myself that that even in the best of times, we just know that good decisions cannot be made in chaos. Chaos is, is, yeah. the, is the enemy of good decision making. It's one thing for um, that chaos to be coming from President Trump and, you know, it might, might or might not affect him. I don't know. He seems to thrive in chaotic environments. But this week, that chaos has so strongly spread to to Congress, right? To to the Joint Chiefs, um, to like you just point to any um, as fe- area of the federal government, and it hasn't been untouched. So I'm thinking, from the for the good of the American people, when you when you're looking at okay, how how is Washington functioning right now? I guess we have to have confidence in those civil servants that show up to work every day, but it, it's a little disconcerting. It's very disconcerting. I mean, just listening to your interview with Paula earlier and how it spelled out how uh, the White House absolutely failed to contain a coronavirus outbreak within the own within its own building, uh, not even doing contact tracing, which 
a reminder that needs to be done quickly Mm -hmm. because you have to get in touch with the people that the folks who are uh, exposed were in touch with so that A, they can quarantine and B, that they can stop, you know, spreading it to others and get treatment that they needed. You can't do that weeks later. And you could look at that in a vacuum and say, wow, that is a complete failure. But then when you step back and look at the chaos that is surrounding this White House, it is just one example of a White House that is totally out of control. You have a president who was needed to be hospitalized with the coronavirus, but was so insistent on leaving uh, that he not only put Secret Service at risk, but then he returns to this big, uh, you know, a despotism display uh, in order to come back to the White House and look uh, strong. You see him then attacking members of his own cabinet. Again, we've seen him do that before uh, because he is angry that the Mm -hmm. Justice Department is not doing things like bringing charges against former President Barack Obama for uh, some sort of discretion that he has still yet explained exactly what crimes the former president uh, has allegedly committed. Uh, You see him railing against the governor of Michigan after she was the object of a terror plot, a domestic terror plot uh, by right-wing extremist groups who wanted to kidnap her. Um, And and instead of denouncing them, he denounced her. I mean, the wheels have completely come off in terms of any sort of stability and, and vision and strategy in leading the country through this very crucial time. Um, so, yes, it's, mm. it's expected that it has spread to all other levels of government and, and levels of the country. You know, I have uh, tried over these many years to, uh, to say, you know, follow the mantra of don't be distracted by what is said. Look at what's being done, right? Examine the policies that are coming out of uh, – administration, including this one. But Jack, I mean, the chaos, it seems like the policy now is chaos. I mean, thinking of the the negotiations over now dead negotiations over a COVID relief bill, granted, they had been stalled already. The House had passed, uh, the House Democrats had passed their two plus trillion dollar bill. Uh, But, you know, then for the president to send out that tweet saying he's just instructing everyone to stop until after the election, I mean, what... what is the policy there, if not just chaos? Yes, uh, he, he's he, you know, he's he's run into uh, a brick wall himself. Uh, he's at the mercy of himself. Now, maybe this is covid related. Uh, maybe it's uh, cortisone related. Uh, we don't know. Uh, he's just making uh, consistently bad choices, but they are consistent with his whole life. This is a six time bankrupt. Uh, he, he uh, on his own, he makes terrible choices in business, in politics. He lucked out in uh, 2016. He certainly had had things f- figured out then. But that's not working now. And, you know, talk, in his flailing, he has said things that are almost well, I found his blaming the gold star families for the origin of his illness. I found that just beyond appalling. I mean, imagine, imagine having the indecency to say something like that. There's no bottom to his shamelessness. And and we're seeing it, it, people aren't going to be able to figure this out 100 years from now. They're going to say, he said, what about people who'd lost members of their family in, in, in war? Quite consistent, of course, with his, you know, his scorn of uh, people who die in combat mm. for their to save their country as losers. Uh, and Jack, just a little minor fact check there. You, meant, you said cortisone. I think you meant dexamethasone, right? The heavy steroid that oh, uh, yes, this, yes, that the yes, president yes, was given right, also right, at Walter yeah. Reed, which has uh, uh, potentially some uh, fairly serious side effects on uh, on mental status. Uh, but Kimberly, let's flip the script here a little bit for a second, because it's easy it's to, to sort of criticize the chaos. But is there anyone with whom this is helping Right. I mean, what I mean is, 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 is if you're the president, you're thinking, well, this is helping me with this group of people. Do, do, do you see what I'm saying? Like, is there what's the right. other yes. side of the story that we're not seeing here because we're only seeing the chaos? 
Yeah, I'm not sure that there is another side. Okay. I mean, just take the stimulus talks, for example. That would be advantageous to the president, both as a matter of policy in that this is aid that Americans desperately need, and as a matter of politics to go into an election without having delivered something uh, that would allow cities and towns to better address this, that would help small businesses, individuals, uh, would seem to be political suicide right before an election, right? Yet the president's instincts were, uh, at least as of yesterday, um, to pull away. It seems that maybe he's back on uh, on track for talks again. But again, just the fact that from day to day, it is unclear uh, is neither a, a policy or a political win for the president. So he seems to keep getting in his own way. He seems to keep reverting to his own gut instinct, which, as we saw in the 2016 election, was to attack who he perceives as his enemies, uh, to try to claim that his enemies need to be jailed or, or sometime, somehow uh, indicted, uh, and to really do this sort of bare-knuckle fight of, of politics and not lead. He's the incumbent. Leading could only help him politically, and, and he's not not, uh, he's not doing that at all. And so it, it's really, um, yeah, to your point, it, it's not helping him politically. He seems to be in some sort of spiral where his gut, which he's always relied on for better or for worse, as Jack pointed out, uh, it, it's his gut instinct is failing him right now. Well, and his gut instinct also, as we discussed a little earlier, he wants to get back out on the campaign trail. And, right. and, and you know, his doctor issuing that memo saying maybe he could do that as soon as Saturday. What do you think about that, Kimberly? I mean, one thing that was very uh, glaringly absent from that statement was a negative coronavirus test. That's right. Which clearly, if if he had taken that, we would have all heard about it. Um, generally speaking, there are several negative tests um, that are required before. It's really safe to go out. According to the CDC, people who have been um, – have coronavirus should quarantine at least 10 days after their diagnosis. And if you're very sick, as the president was, which is evidenced by his hospitalization and all of these drugs that he's on, it should be 20 days. That's by his own CDC standard. So the doctor is going against that in that note. Well, we are looking across the biggest story of this week and how it has evolved or devolved and trying to make sense of of the chaos and what it means going forward as we inch ever closer to the 2020 presidential election. Kimberly Atkins and Jack Beatty, stand by for just a second. We'll be right back. This is On Point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, the stolen bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Uh, Senate Republicans, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has said he will be pressing forward with confirmation hearings for Judge Amy Coney Barrett regarding her nomination to the Supreme Court that will begin, as far as we know right now, on Monday. And so on Monday for this show, we're going to be asking about what uh, Judge Barrett's confirmation uh, and uh, confirmation, should it happen, might mean for 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 women's rights and particularly how uh, conservative women see this moment. So call us at 617-353-0683. That's 617-353-0683. Do you, do you see Judge Barrett as representing a new kind of feminism, a conservative feminism? What does that mean to you? 617-353-0683. Three. So that's for Monday's show. Today, we are winding our way through the serpentine 
news of the week, which was most almost entirely focused on the president and his coronavirus, uh, not just diagnosis, but treatment and how uh, the COVID outbreak in the White House really has reached into many aspects of government. I'm joined today by Kimberly Atkins. She's senior opinion writer at the Boston Globe with us from Washington. Jack Beatty is also with us. He's on Points News Analyst. And on Wednesday, so let's look at how the White House COVID cluster has had an impact on the Supreme Court. On Wednesday, during the vice presidential debate, Vice President Mike Pence said that he does not know how nominee Judge Barrett would rule on an abortion case. For our part, I I would never presume how Judge Amy Coney Barrett would rule on the Supreme Court of the United States, but um, we'll continue to stand strong for the right to life. Well, joining us now is Joan Buskupic. She's CNN's legal analyst and author of several books on the courts, including The Chief, The Life and Turbulent Times of Chief Justice John Roberts. Joan, welcome back. Thank you, Magna. So how do you see... Um, the sort of COVID chaos that began in the White House having an impact on uh, on the high court and on the confirmation hearings of Judge Barrett. It's not going to delay these hearings as far as we know at this point, with only about 72 more hours to go, uh, even though members of the Senate Judiciary Committee have been sidelined, and even though uh, many people view her rollout on September 26th in the Rose Garden as a super-spreading event, uh, Judge Barrett has still been meeting with senators, she's still been preparing, and uh, Mitch McConnell and uh, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Graham want this to happen and I believe it will. But the way COVID has affected the Supreme Court itself is that uh, we're still hearing oral arguments over teleconferences. Mm -hmm. And uh, just on Friday, the uh, Supreme Court put out a notice saying that through December, it's going to continue to operate that way. So COVID has interrupted many things, but it's not going to interrupt the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. It seems as if nothing's going to interrupt that now. I mean, this is what this is what um, Senate Republicans are focused on like a laser. It's so true. This has been a dream for them and for the Trump administration. Uh, President Trump has already gotten two lifetime appointments to the Supreme Court in Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. Remember, it's just a nine-member court, and he's poised to get a third, which will make a very, very big difference in the court and in American law for decades to come. So tell us then, um, it's so funny, we're, we've been in this news cycle, and this week is sort of the epitome of it, where any one thing I could point to would be the biggest news of the week, but they get buried underneath um, the, the chaos of the White House. But we've had um, this memo from Justices uh, Thomas and Alito of opposing the Obergefell case, which um, legalized same-sex marriage in this country. What, what do you make of that? Yes, uh, this was a statement that they put out on Monday when the Supreme Court majority rejected an appeal from a clerk by the name of Kim Davis uh, in Kentucky who had refused to issue marriage licenses in 2015 based on her religious objections to same-sex unions. Just reminding your listeners that uh, that was right after the Supreme Court had declared in its Obergefell versus Hodges ruling that the Constitution held a fundamental right to uh, same-sex marriage. And what Justices Thomas and Alito did was focus focus on the consequences of that ruling for religious believers. They had incredibly sharp boards, which is why I like that you're still remembering it, even though we've had a lifetime of news between last Monday and now. But what they said was that um, when Kim Davis chose to follow her faith, and I'm quoting from their statement, uh, she was sued almost immediately and uh, for violating the constitutional rights of same-sex couples. And they said Davis may have been one of the first victims, those, ter- those were their words, of this court's cavalier treatment of religion in its Obergefell decision, but she will not be the last. What their, their main point, and this is a point that is shared by some others at the Supreme Court, but they did not go public with any concerns, is that because of that Obergefell ruling, some people with sincerely held religious beliefs concerning marriage will find it uh, harder to participate in society without running afoul of Obergefell. Again, those are, that's their sentiment. 
And uh, the, those two justices said that the 2015 case uh, enables courts and governments to brand religious adherents who believe in marriage as between just one man and one woman as bigots. Now, this has been a, a theme that we've seen sort of simmering uh, among justices who were in the dissent in 2015 and uh, among other conservatives who fear that as uh, protections are enhanced for LGBTQ workers and people that it would um, that it would somehow undercut religious liberty. Mm. That does not quite seem to be the sentiment of the majority as the court stands now. But obviously, adding Amy Coney Barrett to the mix could could change things. It, it, Joan, just quickly, is, is are justices issuing this kind of statement? Is that is that in the normal course of things? Does that happen? We just never notice. Uh, no, well, let me just tell you that Justice Clarence Thomas, who is uh, our longest-serving member of this court, appointed back in 1991, regularly does make clear his sentiment about wanting to reverse precedent. He is the strongest on that. At this point, he was joined by Justice Alito, uh, a January 2006 appointee of President George W. Bush. But uh, it, so this this is still unusual. But they wanted to lay down a marker, and the way I read it was with an eye toward having a new member who might agree with them. Mm-hmm. Jack, your thoughts? Uh, well, it it, it it's a it, is it a, is it an augury? Is this something that could happen in the future? Is this uh, particular opinion uh, apt? I mean, apt to be challenged? Is this ruling apt to be challenged in the future? And how would Ju- uh, Justice Barrett rule on such a matter? Do we uh, do we know, Joan? Uh, no, we do not. And it's interesting that you even frame it that way, Jack, because. Uh, at first, when I saw it, I, I thought, you know, maybe this is just Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito doing what they sometimes will do, because they are they tend to be very bold about their conservative views. But it struck me that, uh, you know, I had really felt that Obergefell versus Hodges was here to stay. Uh, obviously, so many same-sex couples have been married since the decision in, in uh, 2015, hundreds of thousands. I thought it was uh, a decision that was woven into American life, but seeing that statement made me pause. Now, Amy Coney Barrett has not, as a judge on the Chicago-based uh, uh, Seventh Circuit appeals court had reason to rule in this way at all, and it is not a theme that comes into her writings. But a theme that does come into her writings is her conservatism, her originalism, uh, akin to uh, Justice Scalia, who dissented mm-hmm. uh, in 2015 from the same-sex marriage case, and uh, you know a, a, a very touchy subject, but one that uh, came up in her 2017 appeals court hearings and may emerge in some way. Uh, beginning in the hearings next week, is that she is, uh, has very strong conservative religious views. And it's, uh, I'm sure senators will be wondering about that. How much they'll voice it, we don't know. Mm. They'll, be, they'll definitely be wondering about it. And I think uh, Judge Barrett has previously said that uh, there are many judges in high, in high courts across this country, in the, fe- in, the, in the federal courts, who have deeply held religious views, but no one questions them, right? So, uh, Kimberly, right. Kimberly, jump in here. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the point that Joan made is right on the money about um, same-sex marriage. I, too, thought, you know, with everyone's concern about the court shifting to a solid 6-3 conservative majority, uh, that LGBTQ rights would be uh, in the crosshairs. And I thought, okay, perhaps when it comes to uh, other things such as adoption rights or, or other places where we might see this sort of litigation, but that when it comes to marriage, it's very difficult to see how that is not the law of the land and here to stay. And that statement made me really reevaluate that. Um, I think one thing we will see senators asking Judge Barrett a lot is her thoughts about stare decisis, because that gets down to whether it's the Obergefell decision, whether it's Roe versus Wade or any other uh, number of precedents, um, that gets right to it. Just what point, at what point does one reverse uh, previous law, the previous law of the land because you don't like it and not because there has been some fundamental change in law or in facts or in understanding uh, that under underscored those original rulings. So mm-hmm. that was something that I'm certainly interested in hearing her thoughts on. We're used to 
nominees not really giving any hint at all and avoiding questions about how they might rule on a specific case. But in something like that, she should be able to give a clear answer. And I think that's something that uh, members of the Senate should demand she give. Well, I've just got a minute or two left uh, on on our focus on the court here. So, Joan, I've got one more question for you, and that has to do with the Chief Justice, with John Roberts. He has been very vocally concerned for a long time now about the politicization of the Supreme Court. And now he, the, it's very possible that the newest justice to join the court will have been confirmed, nominated and confirmed in the most nakedly political process that perhaps we, we've seen thus far. I mean, can you, can you just put us in the head of the, the, of the chief? What might he be thinking about all this? Uh, I think that one of the main concerns he must be having is do not let the, a major election case get to the Supreme Court, like Bush v. Gore. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he was around for Bush v. Gore as a lawyer down in Florida helping out George W. Bush's team some 20 years ago. He also knows how much that ruling bruised the integrity of the court for a period. Some would say it's still there. Uh, others would say it's, it's faded. But I think that he has had so many concerns about American regard for the high court as being removed from politics that I'm sure he would love to, to be able to get past November 3rd, get past Get past January 20th when a new president, uh, either either uh, incumbent Trump with another term or Joe Biden with his his first term as president, uh, is sworn in, and not have the Supreme Court play a major role. Role. I think that's that's a primary concern. Uh, he saw what happened during the Brooke, Brett Kavanaugh hearings, mm. uh, how contentious they were, and he spoke out afterward again, trying to say we are not part of the political uh, pushing and shoving, even though it might sometimes appear that way. And I think he's probably holding his breath right now. Well, Joan Biskupic is CNN's legal analyst and author of The Chief, The Life and Turbulent Times of Chief Justice John Roberts. Joan, thank you so much. Thank you. And Kimberly Atkins, senior opinion writer at the Boston Globe, which uh, with us from Washington. Kimberly, it's always great to have you. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Magna. Okay, Jack. So we've got about three minutes here left on on quite a week. And I wanted to step back with you for for a moment because, yes, there is a great number of questions around the president's health and whether the people can trust the information that's coming out regarding President Trump's current, current uh, medical state. Um, and at the same time, this isn't, this isn't the first time that um, White Houses have been coy about telling the truth about a president's health. So, I mean, in a sense, the country has kind of been here before. Oh, we have again and again in the 20th century uh, history of this of presidential disability really is a history of uh, from uh, willful deceit to grudging transparency. That is from Woodrow Wilson to George W. Bush with President Trump, of course, as in everything in a category of his own. Uh, With Wilson, uh, he had a stroke uh, in the White House. His wife dragged him from the bathroom and put him him back in bed. He was then essentially laid up for 17 months. And uh, a uh, a sort of triumvirate of Wilson and and, uh, his wife and Wilson's doctor ran the country insofar as they could. Uh, They kept all information away from the public, bits of it reached out. The president was substantially paralyzed on his left side. His Mm. speech was affected. Uh, And it was, in in fact, uh, probably the worst example of of deceit with a presidential illness. President Roosevelt, uh, in March 1944, was told by his heart uh, doctor that he he was in god-awful health. That didn't prevent him from running for president that year. He had a seizure in July. Uh, and it looked very bad for him. Uh, but then he made a very charming speech on the radio about Fallah. Not content with attacking me and my family, the Republicans have attacked my have attacked my Scotty dog Fallah. Fallah has not got over it yet. The people loved it. It looked like the old master had it again. He didn't. He was dead within a few months of taking office. 
the public not knowing. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower, on the other hand, after a slightly bad start in 1955, told his press secretary, Jim Haggerty, Jim, tell him everything. Everything included his stool sample. We found that out about the president while he was in his uh, while he was convalescing. And then, of course, the the in the in the 60s, we had the 25th Amendment formalizing how a presidential disability uh, can unfold. And uh, but it's been a very uh, bad picture altogether with uh, George W. Bush uh, getting especially high marks for even being transparent about his uh, having a pretzel in his throat. David Green said we learn more about that pretzel and its health consequences than we have about Trump and COVID. Well, Jack, usually I take a great deal of comfort from uh, hearing the lessons that history has for us to understand our moment now. But today I'm not even sure I take cold comfort from it because <laughs> oh, it just happens again and again. Jack Beatty, On Point News Analyst. Thank you so very much, Jack. Thank you. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes featuring Mindy Luber, CEO of Ceres, a nonprofit dedicated to integrating sustainability into businesses. Here's host Kurt Nickish. Are the people who are working with ESG data now at companies, are they in a sustainability department? Does this just become part of general strategy or part of finance? How is that evolution happening with the actual people who are looking and working with the numbers? So with both companies and investors, the cute idea of social responsibility that was at a manager level or something their foundations dealt with, that's gone. It is very clear based on data, based on facts, based on trends, that integrating sustainability into the core business is crucial. I mean, you cannot have a climate goal that says we're going to get to a net zero by 2040 if every department at the enterprise is not working on that. That's your manufacturing people. It's your supply chain people. So we find that there is often a sustainability team, but they're laying out a plan that involves almost every enterprise, every office, every part of a firm. And that's what we're seeing because nobody can do the kind of cross-organizational work in one little group. It involves the entire team. It involves HR. Who are you hiring? Is DEI being implemented? How is that working? As it relates to where do you get your resources? Are there enough natural resources to make your product? What are the auto companies doing now that they've committed to by 2035, there will be no combustion engine vehicles coming off their assembly line for consumer vehicles. So sustainability is no longer acute, a niche, a part of something off to the side. It is an integral part of almost every major enterprise and every major investor. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Marotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.